Greetings, church and friends of the church. It is the end of December 2020, the week of Christmas, which means that we are more than nine months into this season of wilderness, uh, with the wilderness being our metaphorical image of place, this place where we're disconnected from, thrust out from what we used to understand in our past as normal. And we're wandering in, in the midst of this journey toward a new normal that isn't yet here. Um, and so it's this season where we're not monopolized of going through the motions of what's normal, either what was normal or what the new normal will be. But, but we're in this space where we are free and really compelled to imagine um, a better life together in our future so that it helps to shape what becomes the new normal. So that that new normal is better and more just and more peaceful. So in this series, we've reflected on these natural physical tendencies that evolved within us all. These tendencies to fight, to assume negatively about others, to tribalize with others like us. We've considered the isms that these tendencies lead to when they're the driving forces in life together. These sicknesses that are the collective embodiment of our natural self-serving tendencies. And we've considered the need for a spirituality that counteracts these physical forces. And we've considered, started to consider, some of the different spiritual practices that can nurture that voice within us that tells us something different about who we are um, than just what these physical self-serving instincts tell us. So the first spiritual practice was the prayer exchange, desiring, um, exchanging the desires of the self formed out from the self-serving tendencies for the divine desire of a holistic and common peace. The second practice is meditation, intentionally thinking of nothing, resting in the goodness and the safety of the moment for long enough so that our body's reactive systems, these tendencies, calm and we can live with a rationality instead of an irrational instinct. The third practice is mindfulness. The intentional effort to become more fully aware of the realities and circumstances of others um, without judgment or fear, such that our response to them is not reactive and, and antagonistic, but is one of compassion and empathy. So the fourth spiritual practice that helps us to have this voice in us that speaks a different word about who we are and, 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 and how we relate to one another um, is the practice of gratitude, which is the intentional effort to become more deeply aware of the goodness and the beauty amidst the imperfection of our own lives and ideas and actions and in the lives and the ideas and the actions of others, and in the circumstances that surround us all as we live in an imperfect world. So one of my um, favorite minds and voices out there that I think is just so important and powerful is Brene Brown. And she wrote in her book, The Gifts of Imperfection, about these two different ways that we can respond to the reality of imperfection in life. Will we respond to the imperfection that we experience in the self, in the other, in the circumstances as a negative, a threat, something to be overcome or defeated or changed? Or 
will we respond by acknowledging that imperfection is a part of life? An inescapable reality that cannot be overcome or defeated or changed. And instead of these futile efforts of trying to perfect the self, the other, the circumstance, looking for the good, looking for the gifts in the midst of these relationships and circumstances and ideas that we confess are not and will never be perfect. Her argument is that if our expectation and goal is always perfection, then we will struggle to be a joyful people. That's her argument. And for the purposes of this series of reflections, I might add that this expectation and goal of perfection, uh, of perfection also makes us struggle to be rational and thoughtful because um, of allowing our natural tendencies to go unchallenged which makes us into fearful and angry people. So instead of um, focusing on the good in uh, the present and, and being grateful for it, we focus in two different directions instead. So the first, the first is scarcity. We, we focus on what we don't have in the present. That's the imperfection that we ruminate on. Thinking that if we had what we don't have now, things would be perfect as they're supposed to be. And it's what she calls scarcity. Feelings of scarcity can be about far more than just money. It's any time we find ourselves focused on what we don't have, whether that's resources, power, safety, comfort, selfish pleasure, and, and we perceive this lack as a threat to our well-being. And so it triggers these tendencies to fight, to assume, to tribalize in ways that give us a better chance of accumulating that which we lack. Because our irrational reactive brains trick us into believing that to have this whatever is lacking is the, the key to our well-being. Maybe we've seen the tragic and destructive irony of scarcity where those with the most resources and possessions and power and privilege never see the goodness and the beauty and the security in what they presently have and are just always fearfully driven to accumulate more and more and more, hoping that it will finally make them experience a sense of well-being. But we've seen in their lives and maybe some ways in our own that scarcity is such an empty promise and it leads to the exploitation of others for the benefit of the self. It leads to this unjust accumulation of wealth, power, relationship power, privilege, such that, you know, well-being and, and having enough is not shared by all within the context of the community or within relationships. So second, she argues, we might also focus um, on how what we do have now will someday be gone. And she calls this fear of the dark. So scarcity is focusing on what we don't have. Fear of the dark is fo focusing on how we are going to lose what we do have. So even if there's this momentary sense of perfection in the present, we lament that it won't last and that the perfection we crave is, is just inevitably fleeting. She calls this fear of the dark, fear that something terrible or unpredictable or unavoidable will steal away the present good. We perceive this impermanent and finite nature of our resources, our days, our health, 
our safety, our well-being, etc., as a threat. And it triggers these tendencies to fight, assume, and tribalize in ways that give us a better chance of perpetuating or holding on to these good things for as long as possible, regardless of the cost to others. So maybe we've seen how this dynamic plays out in relationships, families, companies, among the nations. Jealousy fueled by the fear of losing a significant other leads to irrational fighting and the destruction of relationships. Sibling rivalry flourishes where fear of the other hoarding all of the love of parents is allowed to take root. Careers are sabotaged because someone fears that someone else is going to steal their job or their promotion. Nations fear that the well-being of the moment is going to be stolen away by another nation, and so we race to uh, accumulate more and more weapons and military capacity and wealth. Nations fear that immigrants coming in will steal away jobs and resources, and so antagonism and exclusionary laws are born. Scarcity and fear of the dark are self-destructive modes of living, but we are naturally predisposed toward them. Um, we're naturally predisposed to focus on what is wrong and to look for the bad. This is the legacy of these self-protecting tendencies that have evolved within us. We are so fearful, and these fears shut down our thinking. They compromise our ability to make wise and rational decisions that are actually in our best interest. They skew our sense of reality around us. They lead to attitudes and actions that keep us in these antagonistic and negative and tribal places. So that which is actually wise, that which is actually in our best interest, that which is thoughtful and right, that can only come from a place of true clarity, where we are not compromised in our ability to think and our understandings are not clouded and skewed by our reactivity. When we act from places of calm and appreciation and gratitude, these places of positivity rather than negativity, we make the best decisions, the decisions that are most powerful for our sake and also for the sake of others around us. This way of living in the world is fueled by the energy of appreciation and inspiration rather than the negative energy of desperation. But we must intentionally look for the goodness, look for the beauty, look for the potential in every moment and in every person in order to connect to the source of this powerful positive energy. We have to intentionally create new patterns of thinking so that we can pay more attention to what is good and beautiful. And this is a choice. It's not an organic response that naturally comes as we passively wait for some perfect happening to bring about this response within us because there's no perfect person or circumstance. Our animal brains will only and always see the imperfection and, and the fleeting nature of things unless we force them to see the good. This resonates with spiritual teachings from a wide range of religious and non-religious traditions, teachings that all boil down to ways of listening to different voices, speaking about who we are and how we're to respond to one another, than what these reactive and self-protecting physical tendencies are speaking. So again, we're not conflating religion with spirituality as we have these reflections. We acknowledge that um, religious tradition, if it's healthy, can ground us in a healthy spirituality. Um, while we also acknowledge that religion, when it's disconnected from a healthy spirituality, can become self-serving and counterproductive. 
But if we hang on to the heartbeat of these major traditions at the core and their founders and, and not on the misinterpretations, then we can hang on to the good that is within them. So, for example, the Jewish tradition is full of these stories of the people of Israel discovering the depth of their identity and power as they locate the good and the beauty amidst things like exile, wandering, suffering, and oppression. These, these stories tell of how they get stuck in these places of scarcity. They get stuck in these places of negative circumstances until they shift their perception, until they name what is good and right and what is possible, and they act with intention despite the imperfections. The Psalms extol the virtues of remembering the good, celebrating the good, being thankful for the good. I have found this spiritual voice in the tradition of Christianity. So in his most famous teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught his followers not to seek storing up treasures on earth, things that moth and rust eventually consume, things that are fleeting. He taught that we cannot serve both wealth and God, that we have to choose to either pursue wealth or to pursue God's will of peace. He taught the importance of not fearfully ruminating on what we will eat or what we will drink or what we will wear, to, to not get stuck in that place of scarcity and lack, but instead to commit our energies to pursuing the kingdom. You know, his way of describing this intentional pursuit of a social order of justice, mercy, and peace within our lives together here and now. You know, he came out from a prophetic tradition of Judaism where Jeremiah said things like, seek the welfare of the people to which you are sent, for in their well-being you will find your own well-being. He understood that scarcity and fear of the dark lead to self-serving, which leads to greed and injustice, oppression, exclusion, all sorts of social dysfunction. It all starts to fall apart. But it's in seeking the well-being of the other with gratitude that we end up finding our best life. Early Christian leader Paul wrote of the importance of this spiritual practice of gratitude. He wrote to one group of people, don't be anxious about anything. Don't get stuck in that place of fearfulness and scarcity. But by prayer and with thanksgiving, name your desires to God and the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds. So he was inviting them to this intentional practice of naming their desires and those that are birthed out of scarcity or fear, trading them for God's desires of peacemaking and concern for neighbor, and promised that as they did this, they would trade that fearful striving for peace in heart and mind and in body and relationship with others. And he wrote to another group of people, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the divine will for you. So I'm not advocating that we alter the facts of our circumstances in order to make things look better or more perfect, more fitting for what we hope the truth to be. We can't just make up alternative facts and realities, but what we can do is learn to acknowledge the imperfection and then move forward. To not get stuck there and ruminate on it and ask all the questions that continue to lead to the negative spiral, but to learn to ask different questions. If in response to a person happening, a set of circumstances, we're always asking this negative question of what is wrong or broken or missing or threatening. But if we, when we do that, we keep triggering this self-protective tendencies. We keep triggering that part of our system that shuts down our rational thinking and makes us reactive instead. 
We keep pointing ourselves in the direction of antagonism, of fighting, assuming, of tribalizing. We keep adding to the conflict. But if we learn to ask different questions in response to a person happening, a set of circumstances, questions that point our focus toward what is good rather than what's threatening, then these questions can awaken our rational thinking processes rather than our reactivity and can therefore take us in a whole different direction. What if we learn to ask more questions like, what is good about this person that I have previously assumed to be enemy, opposition, or threat, and I have just complained about and been afraid of? What is good about them? What do I appreciate about this person? What if we ask questions like, what can I learn from this imperfect happening or set of circumstances? What are a few good things that could come out of this experience? What am I grateful for, even in the midst of this? As the psalmist wrote centuries ago, the sorrows may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. What good will come? What is possible? What is beautiful despite the imperfection? Do not fearfully ruminate or accumulate. Give thanks for what is good. Give thanks for what is possible. Seek a greater good with intentionality rather than seeking the good of the self with a fearfulness born of scarcity. Awaken your gratitude in every circumstance, for this is God's will. And the true divine will is always going to bring about the well-being of all people. Gratitude is essential to peace. In her book entitled Positivity, Dr. Barbara Fredrickson of UNC Chapel Hill writes that intentionally increasing the ratio of positive to negative thoughts leads to more creativity, more resilience, more empathy, more benevolence, and more kindness. And that intentionally bumping up this ratio toward the positive prepares us to make more positive contributions to the people and the world around us that are so desperately in need. In order to increase this positivity ratio, she leans into gratitude as the key. Gratitude is the key to positive thoughts. And so what might it look like for us to intentionally practice gratitude? So she makes a few suggestions. The first is silver lining positivity. Or maybe we understand it as silver lining gratitude. That is, asking those questions that can reframe our understanding of unpleasant or imperfect circumstances or what is the silver lining in the midst of this for which I'm grateful? She also suggests gold-plated positivity. And that is savoring the good in our daily lives. Slowing down, attending to the good as it happens, becoming fully aware of it, and intentionally prolonging our enjoyment and experience of that good. Not just immediately moving beyond it and getting distracted by the next negative thing that comes along. So many positive psychologists like Fredrickson suggest daily gratitude practices as exercises in savoring. So maybe for you that means uh, setting aside a time every day where you call to mind and savor the good of that day. Perhaps keeping a journal so you can revisit, remember, and savor the good that's been a part of all your days and you build this journey. Maybe that means learning more of a reflexive uh, or reactive savoring, where you take a deep breath and an extra moment of gratitude in response to whatever good thing pops up 
Brown wrote in her research that, without exception, every person she interviewed who described living a joyful life actively practiced gratitude and attributed their joyfulness to that practice. Keeping gratitude journals, doing daily gratitude meditations or prayers, creating gratitude art, stopping during their day to actually say the words out loud, I am grateful for fill in the blank. So silver lining gratitude, gold-plated gratitude, and Fredrickson also suggests sharing gratitude with others to not make it only an individual practice. So our pre-dinner uh, spiritual practice as a family is less about some rote prayer of grace and, and more about a shared practice of gratitude. We all uh, sometimes begrudgingly, um, if we're really hungry and grumpy, uh, share three things that others did for us throughout that day that we appreciated. Three things for which we're grateful. And we are just hoping beyond hope that this regular practice helps to nurture a sense of gratitude and well-being in our girls and helps them to move forward beyond these tendencies that everything else about life is telling them to have toward a focus on the negative. An uh, imperfect score in a test, an imperfect act of one of their siblings that happens every day. These imperfect and disgusting meals that Blair and I are so cruel to place before them. We, we hope that the gratitude, and we trust that gratitude, um, even a simple practice, can, can help to turn the tide. So the studies that have come out from this field reveal that when gratitude is a practice shared with others, the good that the practice generates is multiplied. So habits of sharing good news of gratitude with others not only helps that gratitude to multiply because it forces our own brains to focus on our own good circumstances, but it also focuses on the good in the lives of others, which gives our brains more reasons to be thoughtful and trusting and less reason to fear. But beyond that, it also has the added benefit of contributing to closer, more trusted, more joyful relationships as we practice gratitude together. That actually helps to knit us more closely together, which gives us more reason to be grateful for these friendships, thus adding to this upward spiral of positivity and well-being. So gratitude is the fourth critical spiritual practice to help us move beyond these isms that plague us as we are slaves to our physical tendencies and our physicality. So whether it's nestled within the context of religious tradition or not, how might you develop this practice of regularly seeking to be more fully aware of the good and the beauty that exists in your life amidst the inevitable imperfection? How might you nurture more silver lining gratitude with those Questions that draw your focus away from the imperfection of others or circumstance and toward the good and the possibility that exists instead? How might you nurture more gold-plated gratitude with intentional savoring of the good and the beauty and the possibility? How might you nurture a more shared gratitude with others in your household, in your extended family, your circles of friends, your work communities, your faith communities? What might help you to see that if you seek the well-being of others in a more common and shared good, that the things that you crave will not be lacking, but will be fulfilled. Do some research, do some Googling, do some reading, do some experimenting. 
what might gratitude practice look like for you? I'm happy to talk with anyone about this, so please feel free to reach out. I wish you all well with your prayer and your meditation and your mindfulness and your gratitude practices. Happy holidays, have a happy new year, and I look forward to continuing this shared journey with you all in 2021. Stay home, stay safe, wear a mask if you have to go out, be well, and peace to all.